Hello, trash pandas, and welcome back to another week of trashy divorces. Hey, friends, thanks for coming back to join us. I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. This week, we're using our theme song, a classic from the 1971 Tapestry album by Carol King, who's part of my featured story this week. Who and she's your featured story this week. God, she is. She's the coolest chick around. I said it. The song, It's Too Late, is the anthem for every about to happen end of a relationship and who doesn't love the album tapestry (laughs) this week i covered carol king and jerry goffin Mm -hmm. musical collaborators first loves doesn't last too long but wowza these two provide the soundtrack for so much of the previous generation our generation love it all (laughs) I tried to balance it out because this week you Stacey, did because uh, and you did a great job balancing it out. Oh, um, thanks. Because I I have the trashy divorce of Matt Lauer and his wife Annette Roke, which it's a little trashier. It's it's there's some tough stuff in there. The uh, allegations against him are they're disturbing. And anyway, so yeah, so we have one that's reasonably happy and one that goes places we don't like to go. So before we get to the episode, let's talk about Patreon. Let's talk about Patreon. We're in Trashy Witches Month. Spooktacular. Spooktober. I, I don't know. No boo sheet, you guys. <laughs> it is spooktacular. This week, super fun. We had Trashy Tidbits as usual. That's a staple every Monday. Yeah, the mini series this month, we're going to delve into Trashy Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And the Scottish play. Yeah, you've gotten really good about making sure to always call it that after the laptop died because you think you said the M word too many times. I, real, I said the real name of Mackers way too much. So yep. this past week, we did a high level overview of the plot. We did some fun stuff on the language of Shakespeare. Lots of fun spider webs coming on that. Huh, spider webs. Trashy witches. See what there I did go. there? Ooh, we talked about King James. Yep. And him being a trashy witch hunter. That he, was fun. He was that. Yeah, we launched another fun thing, the Trashy Adams Family Values. Uh, with a We covered the creator of the concept, Charles Adams, who had a really fascinating life. But we have some more trash candy coming with Adams Family mm-hmm. members coming sure. the rest of this month. Lots of surprises in store. All treats no tricks over on the patreon we have a magic mirror to pull out we do let's pull that out and say thank you to brenda f tabitha m lisa s guamacy don m sarah v abigail g rachel l colleen danica l lord w some of you actually signed up for yearly subscriptions thank you thank you thank you so much for that we have a few new super supporters as we well. Do. Welcome to the club. Brandy from MF Omaha. We're we happy have, you're there. We've been waiting for you. Stephanie R. as well as Mary Beth B. Thank you for joining us at the Trash Candy Connoisseur level. And whoa, we introduced a new benefit that listeners can suggest their own trashy mm-hmm. divorce. We have three trash pandas to shout out this week. That is Karen S., Kimberly K., and Carrie A. We are so grateful, and we will soon be telling your stories. So grateful to all of our patrons at every level of support. Thank y'all so, so much. Before we get started, we've got some other quick shout-outs as well. Took a little trip to the post this week, and we had some goodies. We were so overwhelmed. So thank you to Shannon, our friend from Brussels, 
with a lovely note and super cool masks, which support breast cancer awareness in her area. October mm -hmm. is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Everybody, it's a good reminder. Get your gals looked at. Yeah. Services provided not only by your local medical professionals, but you can also visit your local Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. They are a leading provider of women's health and really, really want your boobs to be well. Thank you to Jennifer from Disaster Area Podcast, who shipped us a delicious box of trash candy and other delightful treats. Oh, gosh. So made our day. It really did make our day. And Olivia C. Oh, my gosh. A box of delight. <laughs> One of our favorite members of our trash candy community. Our hands are going to be so clean and our faces so well protected. And so many delightful treats. And, y'all, the cutest crochet uh -huh raccoon slash trash, trash panda. panda you ever saw we'll get a picture of that posted of just the amazingness and we want you to help us name them mm -hmm. so we'll put that on social this week and give us your best names yep for our new crochet mascot again big thanks to all of our patreon supporters shannon jennifer olivia y'all are the best thank you everyone Okay, I think, I think it's about time. You are so excited. Stacy. I just can't fake it. <laughs> Let's go, go, go. Let's go, go, go. <laughs> okay, Alicia, I know you're excited. You have a tapestry of musical legends for us. Oh, it has been 1971 up in this joint all week. I love it. I've wanted to talk about this trashy divorce for so long and with the 20th anniversary of Gilmore Girls that happened earlier this past week mm -hmm. Carol King's mm. legendary weary lead of course being the Gilmore Girls theme it's a tie-in <laughs> it just seemed like maybe some good kismet all around maybe to balance out the trashy divorces tale that's coming for you I agree Stacy I agree with that so this week we're gonna talk about the First love and trashy divorce story of Carol King and Jerry Goffin. Okay. Young love, these two. Both Aquarius signs, double air signs here. February 9th and February 11th, respectively. These two are going to meet. They're going to collaborate in music, then collaborate in marriage, and then, well... Not so much. Sometimes the first love isn't the lasting one. Hmm. But you can't say they didn't try. It was just too late, baby. God, it was too late. Let's talk about it. Carol Klein, no E on that, Carol. And Jerry Goffin, two Gs here. Jerry with a G. I was wondering how Klein was spelled without an E. <laughs> Carol is without the E. Okay. Both Carol and Jerry are kids born and raised in the boroughs in New York City. Jerry's born in Brooklyn, but he's going to move to Queens when his parents split when he is five. Carol's born in Manhattan, raised in Brooklyn. Carol's mom teaches her piano. And Carol is playing at the age of four and writing songs. Wow. Dad's a firefighter. And dad is going to bring everybody over from the borough give to me, come see his kid play. Give me a nickel. <laughs> it's a concert. <laughs> Carol is like, I'll play, but she never really wants to perform. She's incredibly shy. She just wants to write and make the tunes. There's never a question of what Carol wants to do from 
minute one of her life, Jerry either, when Jerry's growing up, he plays this game with words in his head, but except it's music in his head. Like these two kids are immensely talented from the beginning. Jerry's like three years older and Jerry will enlist in the Marine Corps Reserve when high school is done. He's going to end up going to the U.S. Naval Academy for a year, Hmm. but then decides that that's not really the life he's looking for. So he will resign his commission and head to Queens College to study chemistry. Hmm. Carol, whose parents have encouraged and supported her at every turn. By 14, Carol is hot-footing into the city and shopping her songs at the age of 14. Heading on into the city, trying to sell her work. And remember, Dad is a firefighter. So Dad, with his retired firefighter badge, can get into any place he wants to get into in the city. Gotcha. Which will get Carol in one day to see Alan Freed, who is the legendary disc jockey who is changing the face of music in the 1950s. He's playing R&B. He's playing rock and roll. He's playing stuff that is not the mainstream, yeah, like boring, Perry yawn. Coma, yeah. Right. Funky rhythms, right? And Alan Freed's funky rhythms are really placing in the groundwork that is going to shape that musical shift that is coming in the 60s. And y'all, if cotton is the fabric of our lives, the fabric of our soul musically in the 60s, are songs from Carol King and Jerry Goffin. Okay. Like, I cannot tell you how instrumental they are into our collective psyche. Okay, I digress. Dad, flashing his badge, gets Carol in to meet Alan Freed. Alan Wait, is how nice. does this get, is this, it's a fire emergency, I must inspect. Like, how yeah, does this? I guess. And, like, Alan Freed's actually nice enough to talk to Carol. Sure. Like, it was just a different time and a different day. And Carol's like, okay, I'm 14 and I'm hot footing in the city every day to shop my tunes. How do I get discovered? And Alan Freed is like, kid, you pick up a phone book and you start calling record companies. Keep making your tunes, pick up a phone book and go. So Carol, naturally ambitious. I didn't need my dad and his badge after all. Yeah. Carol picks up the phone book and starts with the A's and calls Atlantic. Mm Mm-hmm. But Carol's not afraid. She is super smart and for real. Carol skips from kindergarten to second grade. She's good at math. She's good at reading. And she's just skipped. So she is younger than her entire peer set. And just on a trajectory that is determined. Like, this kid from Queens is not throwing away her shot. Okay. (laughs) Greatest city in the world. It's the greatest city in the world. Carol does an interview with the Kennedy Center Library not too long ago. Again, all references that we use, y'all, are on the TrashyDivorces.com website. And the interviewer asked Carol, like, weren't you terrified? Carol's like, no, someone's going to get heard. Why not me? They're going to listen to somebody. Yep. Might as well be me. Like, Carol has spunk and she is on a mission. I make good music. Carol's going to sell her first composition in Manhattan for $25 when she is 16 years old. Wow. There's just some kind of incredible. The music is in her. During high school, she's going to make a few demos with her friend Paul Simon. 
Carol's going to flirt a little, too, with Neil Sedaka. They may go on a date or two. But Carol has graduated from high school at 15. Like, early because of all the grade skipping. Yeah. Right? So, Carol's going to head off to Queens College, where she will meet future husband, Jerry, who's studying chemistry Mm -hmm. at Queens College. And is there chemistry? Hmm. (laughs) Jerry... Meanwhile, when they meet, is looking for some melodies because Jerry is knee deep in writing a musical about the beatniks. And he has the lyrics, but he needs some tunes. And thus it begins. Musical collaboration turns into romance collaboration. And this mm. is like Carol's first love. Because mm-hmm. she's what, 16, 17 years old? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In August 1959, these musical lovebirds are married in a Jewish ceremony in Long Island. One other thing to note here, Carol is pregnant. Wow. Jerry is 20. Carol is 17. Wow. And these two are going to set the world on fire. Also something to note, Carol, by this point, has added the E to the end of her name and also gone back to that phone book one more time. To look for K names. She still wants to keep the K like Klein, but ethnic sounding names don't go as far in the 1950s culture. And so King it is. Hmm. Phone books. Very useful. Jerry and Carol quit college. So she affirmatively decided not to take his last name? Yeah. Or is this just her stage name? She did this before she got married. She was selling under Carol King. But she never took his name. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Jerry and Carol going to quit college. They're going to get daytime jobs. But then they write songs together at night. They find Alden Music in Manhattan. Pick up the phone book again. And Alden's going to hire both of them. And hey, there's uh, Carol's old friend, Neil Sedaka. He's working at Alden, too. And it's on. Carol and... Jerry are working in this, like, grindhouse of competitive songwriting with a whole group of other talented folks like Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel. Mann and Wheel are another husband and wife team at Alden. And then comes 1960. I feel like Mann and Wheel is also, like, a comedy act. (laughs) 1960. There's a little song you may have heard of called Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. Mm, Doesn't ring a bell. Which is extraordinary. (laughs) For a lot of reasons. In 1960, no girl ever at that time has sung a song about, will you still love me tomorrow if I go all the way with you? Hmm. It is revolutionary. It does not happen. You know, I don't think that I've heard the song recently enough to have realized, like, foregrounded that that's what it was about. Yeah. Will you still love me tomorrow if I go, like, I mean, it, yeah. Will I'm you sure still it's love me tomorrow? phrased a little what more is What subtly. is my worth to you once you get what you want, that's will you still love me tomorrow. Are you ready for the most extraordinary thing about that even after that? Always. Jerry Goffin writes the damn thing. He's the lyricist. She's the composer. So here comes Jerry writing this super sensitive, like, how a woman feels song. Oh, my gosh. Just amazing. Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow is going to be a hit record from the Shirelles. And hello, Billboard Hot 100. In January 1961, 
Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow is the first song to reach number one on the charts ever for a black female group. Wow. It will also be the first time that a female group has charted since 1958 when the Shirelles land the McGuire sisters was the last all-female group with a billboard number one. Hmm. Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow does allow Carol and Jerry to quit their day jobs. So they get like a $10,000 advance. And wow. Now there's credit cards and the path is set, right? The Shirelles total hit with Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. Bobby V is going to hit number one with another song, Take Good Care of My Baby. The Drifters going to hit in the top 40 with Some Kind of Wonderful. Drifters are also going to hit for Up on the Roof. Then comes 1962 with Little Eva's Locomotion. If only we had a budget to buy music rights. I know. Little Eva has been working for Carol and Jerry as a babysitter and household help forever. They're friends with her. Like, you need some extra cash. We're here. Can you watch our kids while we go do this? And this, the Little Eva locomotion story really is terrific. I think I'm going to follow up on it in Trashy Tidbits this week because it's fun, but not the point of this episode. Okay. So by this point, Jerry and Carol have two kids and Carol will say, I was always grateful for my kids. They kept me grounded. There's stuff I have to be committed to. I can't go off and do wild things. I have kids who are relying on me. They're her joy and her rock of strength, right? And then comes a song called It Might As Well Rain Until September. And Carol, again, tragically a very shy performer, Carol will be coerced to sing that song on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. And the song is going to rise up the charts. And Jerry's like, yeah, I don't want you to do any more of those. I don't want you to sing anymore, doing any more recordings. Like, if you could just focus on the composing, baby doll, just compose. And Carol at the time is cool with that. She's like, I don't want to perform anyway. This is fine. Now, y'all... There are terrific resources on the music of Carol King and Jerry Goffin. This could be a whole season for another podcast. It's amazing. If you're into it, go dig around and see what trashy gems you come up with. I mean, you've got the Brill Building and incredible music and the culture of the day, and it's all amazing stuff, but I have to get to the trashy divorce. It's in the podcast name and everything. It, it is in the podcast name and everything. But the thing that I want you to know is between 1960 and 1968, Carol and Jerry will write more than 50 top 40 hits together. They're winning songwriting. Yeah, that's amazing. Not only for the Beatles, but also for the Monkees too. Pleasant Valley Sunday, that's King and Goffin. Chains by the Beatles, that's King and Goffin. Not only are they hitting their stride with white artists, King and Goffin are nailing the black girl group sound. And they're doing really good work for this girl group called the Cookies. The Cookies have been around for a while. They formed back in the mid-50s. And the Cookies that were the Cookies at that time have eventually kind of siphoned off. And the first iteration... Given way to new cookies. Given way to new... Yeah, they do. They they Mm, give way to new cookies. Because the first... Formation of the Cookies are now the backup band for Ray Charles. Oh, wow. Okay, so new cookies mm-hmm. come on in. Fresh baked. Fresh baked cookies. <laughs> and 
The cookies are having some hits with Goffin King. So you're songs. saying it's all chocolate chips and no raisins? <laughs> you're funny. Right, go ahead. You're funny. Like, the chiffons have done one fine day. That's a King and Goffin song, too. Like, it, it is remarkable. But anyway, the cookies. Gaining some notoriety. I can't tell you how important Carol and Jerry are. Um, Paul McCartney and John Lennon say they want to be the Goffin King of England. Huh. That is like, mm-hmm. that is how influential Carol and Jerry are this early in the game is that Paul and John are looking at them like, how do we do what you're doing? Okay. Back to the cookies. So remember, Jerry wants Carol home with the kids. So when the cookies go on tour, Jerry's like, no problem, babe. I got it. Off Jerry goes with the cookies. Soon Jerry will begin having an affair with one of the cookies called Earl Jean McRae. This is 1963. By June of 1964, there's a surprise from this infidelity. Earl Jean is pregnant. Yikes. That baby is going to come in the summer of 1964. Do you know what wives love to find out that their husbands are having babies with other women. <laughs> well, Jerry does come clean to Carol. Good. Right? They're, they're trying to work it out. I don't know. This is where I find this story so relevant. It is the 1960s. And the world is changing in so many ways on the daily. And so many couples in any generation that you're in find that you start out one way and the times change you and sometimes, right, one part of the couple moves a little faster than the other, or you just, you're you're not growing together, Mm -hmm. you're growing in different ways apart, and this, in the 60s, a huge shift of change is happening with Jerry and Carol, because Jerry is really into the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Carol is, you know, She's a mom. A nice Jewish girl from Queens. She's a little bit more hesitant. Mm-hmm. Jerry's growing his hair long. He totally wants to be a hippie. Begins taking LSD and mescaline. And none of this is really working for Carol, who really just wants to write songs and take care of her kids. And the marriage is strained, super tense, but they're staying together. They're really... Trying to work it out. For reasons, okay? They decide what will fix everything is a move to the suburbs. I mean, it can work. Change scenery. Well, this time it doesn't. Uh, They do move to Orange County in New Jersey. This is where they get the inspiration for Pleasant Valley Sunday, which the monkeys will go on to record. And by now, Earl Jean has left the cookies. And started a solo career. But things become a little bit more complicated when Earl Jean and the baby move on to the street next door. Oh, my God. The street next to. Right. Where they've moved to in the suburbs. Right. Wow. Just right around the corner. Right around the... What a what a kawinky dink. So we have problems. all the suburban streets in america problems in little boxes they wrote that song too little boxes yeah Yeah. okay so jerry hates the suburbs he's doing a lot of lsd the marriage is crumbling Mm -hmm. right so carol will write in her autobiography that jerry at this time is suffering with mental illness 
after way too much LSD. Jerry is diagnosed with manic depression, was even hospitalized for a while. Jerry's going to undergo treatment with lithium and electroshock therapy. Like, there are definitely significant mental health events happening. And by this time, the magical music of the couple is done. It's too late, baby. Though we really did try to make it. They separate in 1967. The divorce is done by 1968, where both of them, Jerry and Carol, will individually move to California. Probably helped along by the royalties of another 1967 song you may have heard of, A Natural Woman, covered by Aretha Franklin. Nope, doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, Carol and Jerry. I mean, goddess. Just, oh, it's just a good story. Carol and Jerry are going to play in the West Coast scene for a while, so Carol moves into the haven of Laurel Canyon in 1968, where it is all happening. And she's going to reconnect with James Taylor and will release a debut album, which is not as popular as her second album, Tapestry and Wowza. Y'all, Tapestry tops the chart for 15 weeks. Hmm. Tapestry will remain on the charts for six years six years yeah that's a wildly long time it is a fine work of art and it taps into the psyche of people all over the world it is an influence for every artist that has pretty much ever done anything i have listened to tapestry at least once a week every week of my life and i'm 48 like i it is an extraordinary piece of art. They're so good. Okay. I have some fun fun facts, though, for you. For the infamous Tapestry album cover, which is shot by Jim McCrary at mm-hmm. Carol's home in Laurel Canyon in 1971, they're shooting. They're trying to get a picture for the album cover because, you know, they know it's coming up. And there's a lot of good potential pictures. And then <laughs> the infamous cover photo is shot because Carol's cat is like, mom, obviously you have not fed me ever. And the cat gets in the way of the picture. Sure. So Natch, that so that's is the, the one, cover for obviously. the tapestry album that is so identifiable today. That's probably why it was on the charts for that long. Because of the cat, the cat on the cover? Yeah. Here's your pub quiz question. What was the cat's name? Ha ha. Telemachus is the cat's name. In Greek mythology, Telemachus is Thank the son you. of I Odysseus. was going to ask, but then I was like, what if she didn't write that down? Okay. <laughs> the name Telemachus, he is the son of Odysseus and Penelope, and one of the central characters in Homer's The Odyssey. As a baby, Telemachus falls into the ocean where the dolphins save him in tribute. Odysseus will wear an emblem of the dolphins as a symbol on his shield, the name Telemachus means far from battle. Hmm. So Carol King's cat's name, who's on the cover of Tapestry, Telemachus. Also, another fun fact. Carol King is recording Tapestry and Joni Mitchell is recording Blue. Again, another famous Laurel Canyon mm-hmm. singer-songwriter. They're recording both of their remarkable albums at the same time at the same studio so they are sharing one piano one piano creates both the music on carol king's tapestry 
and Joni Mitchell's Blue. Just fun fact for you. Is that piano maintained in, like, I don't know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or anything? I don't anything? know what happened to the piano. I hope. But there's a clipboard. It's a magic piano. Like, I'm in the studio <laughs> Thursday and Friday. When when have you got it? Okay. And they will yeah. arrange hours that they are recording. It's like so a, they it's like the best piano in the building. It's like a timeshare yeah. of a piano. Yeah. It's also women working together to achieve mutually beneficial... I can come in at that time mm-hmm. if you need it this day. Women running the world. Just saying. Some more fun facts. Mm. Tapestry will win four Grammys. There will be another 23 albums after that that Carol King releases. Sales for those accumulated 25 albums that she'll release over the course of her career. I don't know, 75 million records she sells. <laughs> She's a legend. Carol will also have three more marriages and divorces. Not as great. There's a second marriage to bass player Charlie Larkey. They have two kids. Ends in 1976. Lasts about six years. Her third husband, this is terribly sad. He's a musician named Rick Evers. Carol will write and report that Rick is abusive And they end up splitting, and pretty soon after that, Rick Evers will die of a heroin overdose in 1978. Wow. Around this time, Carol is moving to Idaho, and she's going to buy a 128-acre ranch, which will inspire all of this environmental activism. She'll testify for Congress about protecting the Northern Rocky Mountains ecosystem, there's a fourth marriage to an Idaho rancher, Rick Sorensen, that will end in divorce in 1989. A lot of people who speculate about Carol's life think that maybe these failed relationships are because she is so successful. I'm not going to pin that on her. I'm going to say Carol King is badass, and I love her. For sure. No, I think there is, particularly given, you know, the generational cohort that she's part of, I I can see that a lot of men might struggle to... You achieve all you want, Carol. Yeah. Let's make more secure men. (laughs) Jerry Goffin is going to keep working too, but collaborations are his thing, right? Like, Carol has gone solo, even though she'll collaborate with plenty of people, but Jerry really likes collaborating. Mm -hmm. Jerry, like Carol, will marry again three more times. Well... In the early 1970s, Jerry is going to marry a lady named Barbara Bailing. They have a son in 1976. Around this time, Jerry also gets an Academy Award nomination for the theme from Mahogany. Do you know where you're going to? Sung by the legendary Diana Ross. After the marriage with Barbara goes south, Jerry will marry another songwriter in the 1980s. They have a daughter in 1984. They get divorced. Jerry marries for the last time to actress Michelle Conaway in 1995. But Jerry, for real, even in 1996, in an interview with United Press, is talking about Carol and really trying to deal with it. He says, Carol loved me for what I was. I've had a lot of guilt over my role in the marriage. It's been 30 years and I'm finally feeling expurgated. I feel like I've worked it off, but maybe you never really work it off. It's kind of sad. 
Jerry Goffin, Carol King are inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. A few short years after that, they are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's praise. There's awards. Carol King is actually the fifth recipient and first woman ever to win the Gershwin Prize from the Library of Congress. Well, she will publish a memoir, which is really excellent reading. I recommend it if you want to get in her life. Oh, she'll also be honored at the Kennedy Center. <laughs> in the 2000s, she's busy. Uh, she does a live from the living room tour. She's still touring, but also in the 2000s. She reconnects with her buddy back from Laurel Canyon, James Taylor. And they do these Troubadour anniversary shows. It's one Mm -hmm. of the highest selling concert grosses of that particular year. And a sweet word here about James Taylor, subject of a previous Trashy Divorces episode. Carol King gives James Taylor credit for getting her comfortable performing. She says, I was like a cat. I was shy. I wasn't really into it. And James Taylor and his encouragement makes her brave enough to try, which is a very small thing, but becomes a huge shift because all it takes is for her to start playing and singing and then the audience is in, Mm -hmm. right? It, It gets her over that terrible shyness in playing. I'm just Carol King for life. She is so down to earth and the coolest Woman, I will watch and listen to her all day. Oh, there's a Broadway show, too, called Beautiful about her life. And Jerry Goffin will attend that opening for that show. Back in 2013, about six months after that, Jerry will pass away at his home in L.A. in June of 2014, having written 114 Billboard Hot 100 hits. Eight number one songs, five kids, six grandkids. Hell of a legacy, Jerry Goffin. Yup. Carol, still going strong. Mom, grandma, working the music and her activism, playing and performing and generally just being the coolest lady around total adoration. I think I have to give a trash can for this one. Okay. Giving... The young love, so it just so they're so sweet and so meant to be together and so talented. And then you grow apart, and sometimes the one you start with is not yeah where you're meant to end up. Even though you do incredible things together, they get they they get one trash can for the young love and the story that so many couples go through. It's so prescient in relationships. But I'm going to go ahead and give another trash can mm-hmm. that lives on the block, <laughs> the street over, <laughs> just to Jerry for that one in the same neighborhood. It's just, just the, always one street over yeah, wherever he just, lives. Yeah. Another trash can or two just <laughs> on the street over. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Can you imagine? So one for them and two for him. His are just one street over. That's it. They're maybe yeah. filled with cats and... Grammy Awards and... They're probably filled with Grammy Awards. And probably. trucks of cash would be my guess. Good Lord. Yeah, Carol's like, once we sold Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow and had that money. Like, I've never done an honest day's work in my life since then. Like, that is... Can you imagine 14 selling your songs in the city? Like, these two had such 
It was magic. It was magic for when it was magic. And they literally wrote the soundtrack of the 60s. Yeah. And Carol King, the soundtrack of the 70s. Just. I love this story. I hope you got all the heartwarming feels out of that one. And we all are pulling out your tapestry albums. Yep. To have some good, good tunes and telemachish. Think, yeah, thinking up fun names for your next cat. Thinking up fun names for your next cat. Let's take a quick break. Come back for something a little less light. <laughs> <laughs> Carol King forever. So, Stacy. <laughs> yes. Your story this week. Yeah. Yeah, my story this week. Friends, we're going to try to stick to the divorce details as we tell the story of Matt Lauer and his split from longtime wife Annette Roque. But obviously this story includes some pretty upsetting material as well. And if you are not feeling up for that today, you know what? We love you. Go listen to Tapestry. Thank you. It'll soothe your heartstrings. Yeah, thank you for listening to Trashy Divorces. We really appreciate you. Do something you enjoy. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in. You're the best. (laughs) Check us out on Patreon where we have lots of fun stuff. Yeah, it'll be great. All right. said. Deep breaths. Deep breaths, everyone, so that you can fuel the fire of your rage. Okay. (laughs) Perhaps the best known figure to be toppled in the explosion of Me Too stories that erupted in 2017 was a trusted figure that many Americans had been starting their day with for years. Matt Lauer had joined NBC in 1992 and promptly became their go-to guy for fill-ins on news shows across the network. In 1997, he became an official co-anchor of the flagship Today Show. And over the next two decades, he would host Olympics coverage, Macy's Thanksgiving Day parades, candidate forums, big-name interviews, as well as an annual travel week billed as Where in the World is Matt Lauer? Oh, my. Where in the world? Morally, we can still wonder... (laughs) It's too late, baby. When Lauer was unceremoniously fired on November 29th, 2017, it launched a scandal that continues to reverberate to this day and would lead his long-suffering wife, Annette Roque, to file for divorce from him for the second time in their marriage. This time he had no way to entice her back to him. So let's get into it. Matthew Todd Lauer was born on December 30th, 1957. Capricorn man. Capricorn man. In New York City, he went to Ohio University for college, but left without graduating in 1979 because he had been hired as a newscast producer for a station in Huntington, West Virginia. He's the go-to guy. This would lead to on-air work, which would lead to a decade of moves from station to station and city to city around the East Coast, eventually landing him back where he started in the media capital of the world, New York City. I hear it's the greatest city in the world. I've heard a lot of things. About New York City, often by New Yorkers. Okay. He did have a first marriage in the 80s from 82 to 89 with TV producer Nancy Allspa. And they seem to have parted on good enough terms when they split. They didn't have kids. I think they were just like at that place in their careers. Grew apart, not the... Yeah, yeah, and like career... They're both in TV. That is not the divorce we're here to talk about. No. It would not be until 1997 that a mutual acquaintance, a hairdresser would set him up on a blind date with the woman who would become his wife for the next 19 years and the mother of his three children. Wow. Annette Roque is a Dutch model and equestrian, born December 1966. I could not find a date. Hmm. She may also be a Capricorn. Who knows? Or... Sag. 
Or a Sag. Mm -hmm. Okay. She grew up near Amsterdam, and she decamped to Paris to embark on a career in modeling, I think when she was 22, so in the 80s. Like you do. She was a hit in Europe and later moved to New York City so that she could conquer the modeling world globally. And she had, like, big uh, Victoria's Secret, J. Crew, Like, she was a big deal in modeling. She's not throwing away her shot. No. Then, in July 1997, her friend Maria Santoro set her up on a date with the guy who'd just been promoted to co-anchor of the Today Show. Aww. Perhaps someone she had seen plenty of on television. Here's a little weird. He proposed five months later. Wow. Although he would also later say that the relationship was really slow moving and he didn't even kiss her for two months. Oh. I don't see how those two things... Does not compute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that feels like marketing because he had this like america's best dad image or whatever like i think anyway so they were engaged after five months the following year on october 3rd 1998 they married at bridgehampton presbyterian church with about 100 guests in attendance it was an intentionally intimate affair perhaps informed by annette's apparent unwillingness to become a really public figure in her own right in spite of her career in modeling she doesn't seem like someone who's overly interested in the spotlight. Don't get me wrong, she was stylish and gorgeous and frequently beaming when she posed with her husband at events over the years, but it's not like she was trying to parlay the relationship into having her own daytime talk show, which, right. you know, a lot of people, especially if you have a background in being in front of a camera, really would, but seems like she was happy enough to settle down, have kids, and enjoy an extremely comfortable life alongside her husband. Unfortunately, well, yeah, where does it go wrong? It all sounds so good. Unfortunately, her husband seems to have been committed to making that as difficult as possible for her. Mm. We are sorry, Annette. Yikes. So their first child was born in 01, second in 03, and in 2006, while pregnant with their third kid, Annette filed for divorce from Matt. Really? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Citing cruel and inhumane treatment. Ooh. To bolster the claim, she cited his constant criticisms of her as a parent his extremely controlling behavior, his tendency to focus on his own stuff instead of family obligations, which left her feeling abandoned, isolated, and alone in raising their children. Wow. She said that he was endangering her mental and physical well-being, and she wanted out. She also asserted that Matt would not let her make any decisions on her own, from, you know, travel to home decor to hiring staff at their homes You're to... You're kidding! ...to purchases, like, just... Controlling guy, apparently. So it is worth noting that at this time, the state of New York did not have a no-fault divorce law. Oh, interesting. If you were seeking a divorce, you essentially had to create sort of almost a criminal case against your spouse to prove whatever grounds. So cruel and inhumane was... One of the options. Because New York was the last to overturn that, right? Yeah. 2010. Oh, 10. I think 2010. Yeah, it was, uh, they, yeah, 50th state in the country to get a no-fault divorce law. Remarkable. Which eliminated a ton of fraud. Like, couples would, th- like, would work together to, like, photograph. Like, they would invent affairs with friends so that they could photograph and have evidence of these extramarital affairs that weren't happening. I think it was the governor of California, Ronald Reagan, in 68, who was the first to install the no-fault divorce law. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this on Patreon not long ago. So I'm not questioning the general thrust of Annette's claims here, just noting that it is in her interest to take perhaps small things and embiggen them 
for the purposes of her filing. We know embiggen is not a word. Please don't email. We just like to make up new I words around here. I love the word We love the word embiggen. <laughs> All right. Also, I think there's really good evidence at this point that Matt Lauer has some significant personality defects, particularly as they relate to women. So, at the time, Matt was able to put things back together with Annette, reportedly in part by offering her a postnuptial agreement that included a big cash payment for staying. And what? I saw $5 million. Postnup? Yeah, and... Interesting. Um, yeah, you can have prenups and then you can have postnups. Is this the first instance of a post-nup that we've had on Trashy Divorces? I can't... That is a good question. Think of another one. That's a new term on our uh, bingo card. If you've been sitting on that one, you just got bingo. Okay, so aside from the cash payment for staying, I would assume that there were better financial provisions for her and the kids if the marriage did end later. I mean, that seems fair. Seems like she had a strong negotiating point, and he, you know, he had the image... Okay, so according to a source cited by Page Six in 2017, after the scandal broke in 2006, quote, Matt needed to stay in the marriage to keep his reputation as America's nicest dad. Oh. He is, in fact, a great and very doting dad to his kids, but he is also a terrible husband. (laughs) Wow. I mean, hmm. This did not smooth the waters forever, of course. In 2010, a tabloid reported that they had split and Matt had moved out. Oh. Their responses were immediate and furious, with Matt telling People Magazine from France, where he was co-anchoring the Cannes Film Festival coverage. (laughs) Nice work if you can get it. So he was like, the story is a work of fiction, and my family continues to live together. I've never moved out. I am not moving out. There is no truth to that. People reached out to Annette who said, out of self-respect, I want to stand up for our family and protect them. Matt Lauer would go on to say, have we had a completely perfect, easy marriage? No. But the stories you've read over the years are not true. I don't think we're any different than any married couple that's been together for 12 years. The accusations, which specifically were of infidelity, Mm. are ridiculous, and I'm not going to dignify them with an answer. It's not true. Okay. Yeah. Jump ahead. Oh, no. To the year of our Lord, 2017. Nobody. And, of course, like, a a month before or something, two months before the Harvey Weinstein stuff had broken, like, everyone was reacting (laughs) in a very big way. So, late November 2017, an NBC employee came forward Mm. to report that Matt had sexually harassed her beginning at the Sochi Winter Olympics in 2014. Wow. Yeah, apparently Annette accompanied him to the London Games in 2012, and he told people that she was coming along because she didn't trust him. Oh, yeah. but by 2014. Who wants to go to Sochi, Russia in the middle of winter? Yeah, there were problems with that Olympics, (laughs) if I remember correctly. All right. So, yeah, there was, according to the staffer, there was an event at the Sochi Winter Games, and then uh, this continued after they returned to New York. We would later learn via Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill, that this included what the woman described as a non-consensual sexual encounter in Sochi, and that later there were other encounters that she did not say were non-consensual. She said they were transactional, and she consented based on really how much power he had over her career. Yikes. Which is not how we normally recognize consent. Okay. 
NBC fired him the next day, probably when it became clear that this was not the only victim who was going to come forward. Oh, no. I should probably say alleged victim, as there has never been any criminal proceeding related to any of this. Indeed, by the end of the week, several more women had come forward. One, who was a Today producer in the late 90s, described inappropriate comments that he would make to her at work. While traveling for stories, he would suddenly just ask whether she liked to cheat on her husband. Stuff like that. No. No, Biggs. No, Biggs. Once, while they were in the back of a car, he intentionally scooted closer to her, and when she moved away, he told her, you're no fun. It's just that. Mm. Like, we've all worked with a guy like that. Many of us have worked with that guy, and it is entirely uncomfortable working with that guy. Yeah. All right, so the story that really captivated, and I promise I'm nearly through the deeply awful part of this. But this is deeply awful. Um, The story that really captivated the public and stoked immense anger at both Matt Lauer and NBC itself happened later in 2001. The same producer told the New York Times that Matt had summoned her to his office one day, pretending he needed to discuss a story with her. He then pressed a button on his desk to lock the door. This is how she tells it. When all this news broke, Like, people from inside NBC were like, oh, yeah, all the executive offices have those. It's a security feature. Okay. (sighs) So, it's awful. So, this producer says, you know, door is now locked. Matt asked her to unbutton her blouse, which she did. And then he walked over to her, pulled down her pants, bent her over a chair, and began having sex with her. Nope. She was so freaked out that she lost consciousness. She passed out. She came to on his floor. Oh, my God. You know, pants halfway down. When she got herself presentable again, Matt had his assistant take her to the nurse. She didn't disclose what had happened because she didn't want to lose her job. Oh, my God. And, you know, that classic post-trauma event, she blamed herself for not doing more to stop him. Mm. She said that Matt never made another advance toward her and never said a word about what had transpired, which is deeply gaslighting anyway. Like, it's very bad. And yeah, within a year, she was she'd left like because how. So as far as I know, this woman has remained anonymous and more power to her for that. But you wonder whether she stayed in the industry. Was she able to leave NBC for a better or at least comparable position at a different network. Did she have to take a pay cut? You shouldn't have to change your career trajectory because you work with that guy. (laughs) That's exactly... Whoever that guy is. How many great, talented women have left Mm -hmm. companies because of that That guy? guy. Uh, So, exactly, yeah. Multiply that dynamic and that income impact across careers of women throughout the workforce and just take a minute to be angry about it. So there were many more allegations of all kinds of misconduct, including a much younger colleague who claimed she had a consensual month-long affair with him in 2000 that ultimately left her feelings squicked out because of the power imbalance between them. So that is more than enough about the specific allegations against him. And it is certainly important to note that while he has copped to having extramarital affairs with co-workers, he has denied that any of his trysts were non-consensual. And again, he has never been charged with any crimes related to these accusations. And interestingly, that little door locking button that I think everyone is familiar with. Right. I think you say rape button, and that is what everyone thinks of. 
NBC did an internal investigation, mm. and according to NBC, the button that appears on executive desks does not lock the door. There's no locking aspect to it, but if the door is open, it's held open by a magnet, and if you press the button, the magnet disengages or whatever. Interesting. Allowing the door to close automatically without without the fancy person having to get up from behind their desk and walk to the door and close it. I do not know the truth of this. I have never been to 30 Rock, certainly never in a famous I person's I can't office. imagine you'd make that kind of a door just one purpose. It would... I... Interesting. Okay. I, just sharing... Just sharing info. All right. What does seem to be a consensus view is that Annette was generally aware that her husband was a cheater. Maybe she didn't know each instance. I mean, I'm sure she didn't... I'm sure she didn't want to know each instance. I think she just was aware. He spent the work week living in an apartment they owned in Manhattan. She and the kids lived out in the Hamptons. From 2016 on, they lived at Strongheart Manor, the waterfront estate they purchased from Richard Gere. During, oh, right. During it his, all comes back around again. Yeah, during his last divorce, and we covered him last week. The couple also own a 40-acre horse farm oh. in Watermill, New York, where she could indulge her interest in riding. And it seems like she just wanted to give her kids like as much normalcy as possible, given sure. that they're like wildly rich. But then the scandal broke. Mm. And whatever blind eye she kept turning his way, that was done. Yeah. Interestingly, she did not immediately race to divorce courts. Like in the immediate aftermath, page six said she pulled their youngest two kids out of school. The older one was at a, a prep school. He had a place to stay. Okay. Yeah, like pulled the two kids out of school, flew to the Netherlands, probably trying to shield them from all of like the news blitz that was happening. Oh, well, that was probably good. As well as collect her thoughts with her family, you know. Makes sense. Hide out. Reconvene. Get out of the milieu. Yeah. See how it all shakes down. Eventually, the extremely estranged pair began the process of moving forward. Again, three kids, you know. Matt listed his Manhattan apartment in March of 2018, and it ultimately went for a cool $8 million. Whoa. Way over the list. It was like an extra 600 grand or something. Okay, his salary per the two-year contract that he had just signed in 2016 oh my God. was $20 million a year at the time he was fired. Oh. And tabloids speculated about the potentially $100 million divorce facing Matt Lauer. But that's not what happened. Yeah. Um, he moved into one of the guest houses at Strongheart Manor. And apparently he and Annette conducted a lengthy negotiation on, you know, her departure from being his wife. Okay. Some of the ancillary stories in this period were like trashy bonzo. Okay, so the couple had leased a big sheep farm in New Zealand for $9.2 million. Sure, like you do. Yeah, and it was like, it's a it's a lease, but it's through a government trust. So it's it's comparable to ownership with the understanding that actually that's New Zealand property at the end of the day. All right. So it turns out that to be a foreigner who owns property in New Zealand, you must be of, quote, good character. Oh, my. And <laughs> what happened to those sheep? It, <laughs> it also turns out that they get the news in New Zealand, too. They speak English and everything. Hello, Kiwi listeners. Hi, friends. 
All right, so New Zealand authorities interviewed Matt himself. They talked to NBC, and ultimately they concluded that given that there were no criminal charges and certainly no criminal convictions related to, you know, whatever behavior he's been accused of, but right. but it's just allegations, that he could keep the lease on the 16,000-acre farm, which Whoa. includes eight miles of lakefront land and eight miles of riverfront, plus a five-bedroom house and assorted farm buildings and fishing huts. <laughs> Sounds lovely. It also came out that former Today co-host Ann Curry had maybe been pushed out because at least one of his alleged victims had confided in her. <gasps> and she had tried to alert management that they had a problem no. with Matt Lauer and his female staffers. Oh, my. Once again, multiply the impact of sexual harassers on the careers of all women in all industries across the economy. Mm. And my guess is we're easily talking about billions of dollars a year that should be accruing in women's bank accounts, but is not. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right, there was some goofiness in the press early on about how Matt Lauer was fighting to save his marriage and he doesn't want a divorce, but come on, dude. Yeah. And that finally took a completed settlement agreement to a judge in Suffolk County, New York on July 9th, 2019. So close to two years after all of this broke, and it became final in September. That's a of, lot of negotiation. Of 2019, yeah. Details are private, but it's been reported that Annette got $20 million in assets and gets to keep the horse farm in Watermill. Strongheart Manor, that six-acre jewel of a parcel with a six-bedroom, seven-bath main house and a screened-in porch next door to Jimmy Buffett's Hamptons estate, went back on the market last July, too. Originally, it was listed for $44.8 million, but oh. just last month, in September of 2020, Matt dropped that to just $43.99 million, a real bargain. We've decided that Strongheart Manor is property of cultural significance to trashy divorces. Oh, we'll, we'll, we have? We have. Okay, fantastic. Oh, I meant to tell you, we Great. have. we've totally decided whatever you're about to say. <laughs> Whatever I'm about to say. Thanks. Um, also, we will be hosting a Patreon drive to raise the $43.99 million. So if you could say, like, tell a million or so of your best friends about our podcast, that would really help Great. us out. Thanks. We can get this done quick. Party on the Strong Heart Manor lawn when the deal is done, everyone. Room, trash pandas unite. Room for everyone. All Jimmy right. Buffett is going to love our oh, trash panda compound. So so much. All right. Annoyingly, when Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill was released last October with fresh and more detailed revelations slash allegations about Matt Lauer's behavior, Annette Roque was approached for comment. I hate that. She and her children are certainly among the many people that Matt Lauer has misused, and it shouldn't be on her to answer for his bad acts. Yeah, just leave her alone. Yeah. And her lawyer was like, they're divorced. She has nothing to say to you. Like, Whatever. Matt Lauer, you get 44 million trash cans. Yeah, you do. And our fervent hope that the frequent whispers that you're finally going to make a comeback never amount to anything. I'm in. Yeah. Sounds good. That's Matt Lauer. And Annette just gets sheep with halos and unicorns on her farm. Yeah. I like you want to talk about being the better person. She could have like effectively murdered him in court. <laughs> Yeah, Annette sounds like she has a... Yeah, and she took the high road, and she her. put their kids first, and... Um, That's the way it should be least, done. Well done, Stacy. At Stacey. least those kids have one great parent. That is some pretty on-brand trashy divorce. Mm, that's a tough one. Um, 
I've been avoiding covering it, but we we have had people ask for it, of course. We aim to please. I mean, this, there's nothing pleasing about that no, story. No, there really it's... isn't. We, for those of y'all who stuck around for that, thanks. Thanks. For coming back another week. Yeah. Y'all are awesome. We appreciate you sharing your time with us. Always. Always keeping it trashy. Forever. We'll be back next week. With, with more, more listeners suggested trashy divorces. Hopefully less trauma, less traumatic stuff. Yeah, it's our month of trashy witches. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a We good have point. some ideas. We're doing all kinds of spooky stuff over on uh, Patreon as well. So if you need to get your Halloween groove on, come check us out over there. Oh, for sure. Trashy, it's been a lot of fun. At patreon.com slash trashy divorces. I think that's it for us. And Yeah. Until we see you again, keep your hands clean. Mm-hmm. So, so clean. Very clean. Keep your masks on. Definitely. Keep your hearts so trashy. Very, very trashy. Thanks, it's our, everybody. It's our favorite thing. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Y'all are the very best. Keep it trashy. See you next Sunday. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us. Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.